The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 40 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. I'm not the violator, the vindicator, the vandalizer, the vaporizer, or the vacillator. I'm just Adam. Nice to meet ya. And joining me tonight are two gentlemen from the Great White North who know comics like Bob and Doug McKenzie know beer. A couple of Canucks who can talk about superheroes for as long as Brett the Hitman Hart can compete in an Iron Man match. Yes, Canada is well represented tonight. So please help me welcome Mr. John Byrne and pit creator Dale Keown. What's that? They got snowed in at a Tim Hortons? So who did we get instead? Oh, those guys, eh? All right, well, uh, like I was saying, please help me welcome from the online world of comic book fandom, the man who knows Strike Force Moratory isn't a kind of steak preparation at a Benihana's restaurant. It's Chris Bailey, a.k.a. Charlton Hero. Okay, Adam, I'm getting Alpha Flight to beat the snot out of you. That's it. <laughs> That's what's happening. Bob and Doug McKenzie, are you kidding? <laughs> You're not even going to call me a hoser? <laughs> what's that all about? <laughs> and making his first appearance on the podcast, a dude who never met a comic book discount bin he didn't like. It's Michael Schwartz, aka 50 Cent Comic Collector. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Longtime fan. Yeah, we've been communicating uh, back and forth on Instagram for quite a while. It's been lots of fun. And, uh, you know, I just watched, gentlemen, a documentary on Tubi called Lost Heroes about forgotten Canadian superhero comics featuring the Canadian Iron Man, who was way, way, way before Tony Stark, Canada Jack, Nelvana of the Northern Lights, who predated Wonder Woman, Captain Canuck. I mean, I, I'm just curious for you guys what kind of fandom or you know affinity do you have for your countrymen and their contribution to the world of comics specifically trying to create canadian heroes okay adam so i take a lot of grief from uh, not being an alpha flight fan despite living in canada okay so it, it's one of those things where I, i'm almost kicked out of my own country for not appreciating <laughs> alpha flight but I'll tell you what, when you're talking about the, the, the paragons of virtue, such as Captain Canuck, so I want you to picture Canada. So it's a, it's a massive piece of land and territory, okay? From, from west to east, it, it is a big thing. Now, over on the east coast is where I reside in Newfoundland. And do you know that we have our own, our own, Adam, particular group of superheroes that live right here in Newfoundland? One is called Captain Atlantis. Oh, yes, he's Canadian, and he's here, and he represents Canada, believe it or not. Actually, he represents Newfoundland, so picture a giant cloaked figure with the visage of Newfoundland on his face. Yes, he's Captain Atlantis, but he will not be outmatched as Captain Canada. That's right, Captain Canada also protects Atlantis from villains such as you guys across the border. There you go. <laughs> How about that? I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think I'm I'm the opposite of Chris. I adore Alpha Flight, but I know nothing about the other Canadians. I, I know very little about Captain Canuck. I think in grade school, in, in one of the, like, grade six or something, I, I remember us being handed out, you know, Captain Canuck comic books as a way to hook us into uh, Canadian comics at the time. But I know very little about the guy. And when I find one in a 50-cent bin, I'll pick it up. But Alpha Flight, I am obsessed with. And I will tell you the story eventually. But when I had all my comic books stolen a few years ago, one of them was an almost complete run of Alpha Flight. And that oh. was really hard. It really hurt when I found out they were gone. So... I bet. And I will tell you, by the way, speaking of Captain Canuck, he is the only Canadian superhero I knew of because a couple years ago there was a reboot going on and he was a free comic book day yes. giveaway. So I got that yeah, book and I was like, oh. So do you know that there's a super rare piece of Captain Canuck history out there? Do you know that he has its own coloring book available <laughs> oh. in dollar shops all across Canada? And it features uh, some of the pages from Captain Canuck comic books that you can color at them. What do you think of that? That is pretty impressive indeed. Listen, if you're talking about Captain Canuck, this guy dates back right to, I think, 1975 in the appropriately named Comely Comics from Winnipeg. <laughs> now, as a Canadian, I feel ripped off. I never got this coloring book. What, what happened? How did I not get it? It's not even sequential, so head to your local Dollarama, that's a cheap Canadian plug, and look, scour in the very back of that uh, that book rack for that features books that are not quite a dollar. They're usually four bucks, and you will find, maybe in the very bowels of that particular place, a Captain Canuck coloring book. It exists, my friend. Michael, scour the Dollarama, was all I'll tell you. <laughs> I will, I will. Now, Mike, we know what country you hail from, but not how the hail you got into comics. Uh, that's a little Southern American humor there. Uh, so let's well go done. back to the beginning, and we want to hear your origin story. Right. I like to joke that it's kind of a it's a three act story um, with the first act being that my father was a huge, huge comic fan. He would drag me around as, as like a two year old or three year old to different comic shops so he could build his collection. So I got into it pretty easily. I even had my own pull list when I was like five or six with like three books on it, like Spider-Man, Hulk, Silver Surfer. And of course, that continued on through basically the 90s. And then once the 90s hit, I got really into Spawn for a long time. But then I, I kind of fell out of comics for a while. I got really into horror movies. And that, that led me to film school. And then in film school, I got back into comics. And that was because of Jeff Johns and all his writing at DC. And I got super into it and i would call this my act two where i was like really really into it and i was so inspired by jeff johns in particular that i ended up deciding hey i, I think i want to be a writer if, he, if this guy can do it i can do it and so i pursued writing in film and that's what i do to this day i write animated movies a lot that don't get made now i just write them and then they just disappear so when can we expect captain canuck 
<laughs> you know, I've been following the rights to that. It jumps around from different Canadian production companies. And I, the last I had heard, I think it was with Jay Baruchel. You know, you know that yeah, Canadian actor? sure. He's a great director now. Yeah, well, what's strange is he actually lives down the street from me. I see him from time <laughs> to time. So if he's listening, I would love to help him out with that script. <laughs> you know, I've been in film for a while, and then... There was a point where I stopped, I think around New 52, DC's New 52, because during that point, I was really into DC, not really a Marvel guy, and stopped reading comics because I think I was living in condos, just didn't have the room for my comics, so they're stored at my mom's. And then we finally moved to a house where I had the room, brought the comics to my house, and I was cleaning out an area where I wanted to store the comics. I had to store them in the garage for the time being. We had just had our second child, and that night, Someone broke into the garage and stole every single box of comics I owned, except for four that I kept in the house for some reason. I don't even know why they were still in the house, but it was like 16 to 20 boxes of comics all taken between the hours of midnight and 4 a.m. Wow. And somebody was casing your comic collection. They had to know they were there. It was so strange. I, I had a lot of stuff stolen, but that that hit the hardest. You know, I call this my dark night of the soul. You know, for any writers out there, that this is my low point in the story where I was like, I give up on comics. I told my wife, I'm never going to collect another, another comic. You never have to worry about me filling up, you know, closets and stuff with boxes again. And within a few months, I found a guy who was selling like collections. And, and the ones I wanted to get back was like Silver Surfer because I, you know, my dad bought me those as a kid so he was selling an entire run of silver surfer and it worked out to about 50 cents a comic so i was like this is great i didn't know people sold them in sets like this and then right. next thing i knew there was a pawn shop up the street for me and all the comics at the pawn shop are 50 cents then i find out my local comic shop they have a deal where if you buy you know a certain amount of comics they're all 50 cents or 33 cents if you buy a lot you oh. know if you buy 30 and then I just kept finding places that sold 50-cent comics. And now we're in the Act 3 where <laughs> I am more into comics than I've ever been. I'm literally in the process of producing my own comic. I have an artist from Spain right now who's he's actually a painter. He's painting each page of the comic. So that's where I'm at. That is my origin story. And it is continuing. A true epic. And how many log boxes are you up to now? Are you back to oh, 16 God. and beyond? Okay, well, I never had long boxes before. They were all short boxes, so it was about 16 to 20 short boxes. Okay. Now, in my house, I have, it's got to be like 30-something short boxes, and in the garage, I have four long boxes and another maybe six or seven short boxes. Wow. <laughs> so, Michael, I, I have one question. Yes, yes. Did you go back and, like, just rebuy all the stuff that you had, or did you start buying new stuff? Well, that was my goal at first. And then I was like, oh, New Avengers. I never read that. You know what? I can get almost the whole run here and I'll grab like anything I can find. But then I'll be missing like issue two. And it's like, well, I can't read it till I get issue two. So then it just becomes this. It's a spiral. I'm, I'm spiraling out of control, trying to read stuff I always wanted to read but never did. And so I'll f have like partial collections. And, and so I'm obsessed with trying to fill those holes. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. So I, I fell into a rabbit hole known as Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> and and let me tell you something. There's there's nothing more rewarding than someone's auction who don't sell, and then you, you do the Pearl Harbor. You go, I see that collection for $50. I'll give you 20 bucks. 
and you're just waiting for that response and all of a sudden you get it and they'll go yeah well i'll take 25 and you're like bingo jackpot <laughs> and you're out the back door like a thief in the night i you know i am a little concerned though because i have been dipping into the dollar bins more and so i'm like oh no you know my handle on instagram is 50 cent comic collector and I'm, I'm buying a lot of dollar books. I might have to change the handle. <laughs> You're thing. living a lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great, man. That is that is an exciting tale. And as we get into this now, back in the day, you might have been writing to try to get people to sell you their collections. You know, you'd find those listings in the old comic books and people say, hey, do you need this? And then you can write to them. So we're going to open up some letters here with Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. <laughs> So starting out here, this is really interesting. In the Market Watch section, Simon Livingston from Oxford, New York. Yes, it's a very nice name. He has an idea on how to prevent polybags from causing the comics inside to suffer from chemical damage. And that is something that has been raging in the pages of Wizard almost since the beginning, that people were saying like, oh, it's not a good idea. Why is a polybagged one worth more when it's really going to destroy the comic? So on and so forth. So here is what he had to to say about that. Hey, market watchers, I have a suggestion, mm, solution, about what to do with polybagged comics. Take a knife, or scissors, I don't care which, and put a series of slits in the bag. There you go, your comic's still inside the bag, and the slits will allow the comic to breathe, so the chemicals won't damage it. Am I right, or am I right? And Wizard's response, sure, Simon. And would step two be microwave for five minutes? <laughs> poor simon he's clueless adam have you have you ever had a comic that's been in a comic book bag not even a poly bag but something that sits in a bag so long that the bag gets all almost like a milky texture on it you know what i mean it it mm -hmm. starts it begins to stick to the front cover it may be in like a a humid part of your house or something and all of a sudden it gets cloudy then your comic inside disappears and dissipates yeah it definitely happens and for your long time listeners you might recall back in the day our first video on youtube i ate part of an x-force number one that was still in the poly bag well deserved yeah by the way <laughs> delicious and uh, <laughs> aged like a fine wine but no so i as i dug into that though and i was looking at the poly bag like yeah it was actually causing the ink and everything to flake off you know just based on how that had been stored that wasn't one of my originals i actually got it from a friend so but i was just like yep so it does cause damage over time if you're not storing it right there is some justice in, in you physically consuming Rob Liefeld. There is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's a very existential crisis. I think about it every day. But speaking of chemical damage, D. Dewing of Dallas, Oregon wants to know how the Human Torch deals with what I would term fantastic flatulence. So here is his question. If the Human Torch was on fire and he passed wind, would a fireball shoot out of his butt since farts are flammable? At least according to Blazing Saddles. Uh, so, Wizard's answer. It would depend a lot on what Johnny had for dinner the night before. If it was a fart resulting from a plate of Mugugai pan, a side order of broccoli, and two cups of coffee, he'd blow a <laughs> hole in his shorts. Torch half a Central Park and end up in orbit. And we don't want to think about what his colon would look like. So, ah, the, the flaming colon. You have to change his name. <laughs> 
<laughs> Although maybe he would have something more in common with uh, Pee Wee Herman's character, you know, from Mystery Men, the spleen. <laughs> Avoid Mexican night is all I'll tell you. <laughs> he would not be welcome on any of the adventures south of the border for the Fantastic Four. But, you know, I think it's time that we check out some of those headlines, guys. So let's pull up the Wizard News. Boy, do we start out of the gate with some big, big news, which is the top story for the third issue in a row, actually. <laughs> and it's revealed that all the X-Books, now think about this, all the X-Books will be rebooted with an issue one, which will be repeated over and over and over <laughs> as part of a storyline that at this time is being referred to as After Xavier, the Age of Apocalypse. This is where Charles Xavier is murdered 20 years before founding the X-Men. Rebranded titles will include X-Men being changed to Mutants, the Amazing X-Men. Uncanny becomes Mutants, the Astonishing X-Men. Generation X transforms into Mutants. Generation Next, X-Force being rechristened to Gambit and the Externals. Yikes. Wolverine becomes simply Weapon X. Cable dares to be renamed X-Men and Excalibur just changes to the spelling X caliber so yeah that was kind of an interesting thing that they were going to have the mutants before that after xavier that's just too many words i I want to know who is the one that said no guys but it's not going to fit on the cover (laughs) there's a whole lot of x posturing Do do you get the feeling that they were really trying to like flood the market to make sure nobody steals any of these x ideas sounds like it i mean it just seems like we're reclaiming x you know you could have blood rob liefeld everything could be blood on your side but we're keeping (laughs) x like what's left after you've stolen all these ideas from generation force externals my god so much used (laughs) they also dropped the after xavier right because i don't remember that yeah, yeah. being a thing. Uh, but, you know, this double page spread, this ad at the front, that really brought back memories when I pulled this issue out of my um, long box. It's like this really messy, impressionistic painting of the the Age of Apocalypse characters. Like, it's like Wolverine and Cable and Sabretooth with that weird chain, and he's, it has that weird other... Do you, do you guys Wild remember? Wild Child? Is that the name of that Wild guy? Wild Child, yes, yeah. But this poster, this was a poster I had, and it hung up on my wall. I don't know what happened to oh. it, but... This this brought back memories when I opened it up. I was like, whoa, this time period was a big deal. I don't remember a thing about it, though. I have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting, too, is that the page before it even, before it opens up to the two-page spread, is like the f- opening page of the first X-Men comic, and it's just burning. It's like, you know, painted flames all around it. Professor X is dead, you know? <laughs> so it's like pretty intense. Rob Liefeld announces that he is forming a new imprint called Maximum Press, which he states is solely owned by me. It has nothing to do with Image Comics. Planned titles for this new publishing enterprise include War Child, which continues the tale of Sword and Stone, which was previewed in Wizard Magazine a year or so before this issue. Commenting on whether this means Liefeld is planning to leave Image, Rob states, if I was pulling out of Image, you would know it. 
There'd be a ticker tape parade and jets streaming across the sky. I don't do anything in a small fashion. Oh my god. <laughs> Can you believe it? I was able to pick up the first three issues of War Child, so we will be covering that on the podcast as part of Robin's Reading Rainbow. Something to look forward to? <laughs> yes, you look forward to it. Of course you, you know, do it. It's strange. I've never seen it in the 50 cent bins. Maybe it's a hot commodity. We shall see. <laughs> What's funny about the whole Maximum Press thing, I I'm glad that this has come out right now because this is sort of making the rounds on the podcast scene because you have Rob Liefeld in a recent episode of Rob Servations. I, I guess, are we still allowed to plug that? or, or <laughs> <Yeah. Ben talking laughs> We're doing that? our best. We're helping you all out. All right, Rob. all right. We, we won't plug it. So don't listen to that show. But I will tell you <laughs> that if you did listen, you would understand that Maximum Press was actually a backdoor for Rob Liefeld to actually escape Image Comics. So basically, he made sure he lined up all his titles, all of which looked like Cable, every single one of them, and moved them to a thing called Maximum Press. Now, he had already solicited all these books under Image originally and switched them over to Maximum Press, which threw a massive, massive lawsuit from Todd McFarlane and uh, and the other representatives from Image Comics. So very, very, uh, very, very current. Rob spoke at great length about this. So, you know, fascinating to see that Rob reveals a mass termination of all but four ongoing extreme titles in an upcoming storyline. In the aftermath, only Prophet, Nightmare, Mark, and a new book called Blood Pool. Oh boy, that's original. Will continue. Blood Pool, guys. I what what are you doing, Rob? At that point you're just you're just stoking the flames. You're like, Marvel, I dare you to come after me. <laughs> oh man, he was at it all the time. So you know when you're looking at the we just talked about all these new books that were coming out, Excalibur, Externals, all these different things. It's funny because Rob started out trying to make his own X Terminators book. That's what started the entire Youngblood fiasco. He wanted to move his own self-published comic book into a title called Exterminators. So that's what began the self-publishing idea. So, you know, it's not a new concept, but very, very interesting to see Blood Pool come out of this. Death of Clark Kent announces that one of Superman's greatest foes will uncover his secret identity, meaning to protect Clark Kent's family and friends. The alter ego must die. Though Dan Jurgens comments that death can mean a lot of different things in comics, poking fun at Spider-Man's then-current storyline. Writer David Michelini jokes, maybe we'll find out it's really the Clark Kent clone. <laughs> Ouch. Hot topic! <laughs> everybody was coming after Marvel in those days. Wizard, everybody taking him down. Uh, anybody know what happened with the death of Clark Kent? What it actually was all about? It was news to me when I read this last week. When I read this issue, I was like, that happened? It, fe it feels like it's about as popular as when Batman got his all-black costume when Bruce Wayne came back that we covered last episode. It's just like, yep, they did it. Nobody yeah. remembers. Corman turns to B Comics, reveals that B Movie Schlockmeister Mr. Roger Corman is moving into the comic book realm, oh boy, by making sequels of his cult classic film in illustrated form with Cosmic Comics. I don't know if I've ever heard of that. Hmm. Titles will include Death Race 2020, Little Shop of Horrors, and the adaption of The Wasp Woman. Now, that's, that's a mouthful right there, Adam. As soon as I read that, Death Race 2000 is one of my favorite cult classic films. I have it on yes. VHS. I just, it's so much fun. It's so good. Goofy. For those who don't know, Sylvester Stallone, one of his earliest roles. I mean, it's it's got some great stuff in there. David Carradine, if you're a Kung Fu fan, or Boy. Kill Bill, I guess. Uh, but I bought the first two issues of Death Race 2020. 
2020, literally, as I was researching for this episode, I just got on eBay. I'm like, yep. And they are fantastic. They're very wild. They're very much kind of like British comics, you know, like kind of in that style of like the ultraviolence. The art, it's reminiscent of Keith Giffen in his like trencher comics or things like that. So it's really like distorted figures and shapes, but super cartoony. And it's just got like a wicked sense of humor, just like the movie. They're a lot of fun. That was the first thing I checked out after I was like, I cannot believe this existed. It's eight issues. I think I'm going to try to pick them up. And Little Shop of Horrors also had like, I think a three issue or five issue run. And Rock and Roll High School even. I love Rock and Roll High School with the Ramones. So they got a different punk band to star, you know, in the Rock and Roll High School comic book. So what the heck was Little Shop of Horrors? Wasn't it an adaptation of the movie or was like an extended universe of Little Shop of Horrors? Like what in the hell was that? (laughs) I thought it was just like an adaptation, but maybe it's a sequel. Didn't doesn't it say? I, I think just Death Race 2020 and the Rock and okay. Roll High School. And then I think they did one more, which was Caged Heat 3000, which yes! eventually became a movie. Because I remember renting that for Blockbuster Video when I was in yeah, high yeah. school. Ooh, what's this about? You know? Immediately. Yes. It was right next to Gator Bait. Uh, yes. <laughs> one and two. It was a classic. Or Avocado Women Cannibal Jungle, whatever. Avocado Jungle. Em- embrace of the Vampire. What? Not that I've ever seen these. <laughs> Tops Comics announces that they will be publishing X-Files comics and a trading card set to capitalize on the popularity of the creepy Fox TV series. Upon its release in a few months, this book will actually get the cover of Wizard, a half issue, and packed in trading cards. Now, this was a huge deal, I remember. X-Files was everything back then. And I, I remember getting the first issue and then immediately not caring anymore for some reason. <laughs> Yeah, in the zeitgeist, but not that it endured. I mean, I'm sure it had a good run, but it's just one of those things that's not, like, acclaimed. People don't say, go back and read the X-Files comics. Although, Stephen Sapellus, his wife, Annie Flowers, is, like, the ultimate X-Files fan. And when we get to that issue with Mulder and Scully on the cover, she's hopefully going to be joining us and fill us in just on what it was really all about. That's great. All right, Chris, and something a little less exciting. Boy, we talked about lawsuits just a second ago we're talking about yet another one so before we had Liefeld's Battle with Image comics and you know Maximum Press well here we have another the former editor-in-chief Mr. Jim Shooter so August 31st will be known as a sad day in 1994 because it marked the death of Defiant Comics which had already ceased publication by the, the actual release of this issue itself was a publishing imprint that Jim Shooter oversaw after he was let go or fired depending on which side of the story that you uh, choose to understand from Valiant. So he brought on a lot of talent, including Steve Ditko and a bunch of other casts, and they created Defiant. One of their first things they created was Plasm. Now, Plasm was a trading card set that had be assembled into a binder and, and read like a comic book. It was a great idea, but uh, the overall decline in sales of the comic book market due to the glut of all these new publishers, they had completely oversaturated the market by 1993. So, all of a sudden, Jim Shooter was once again looking for a new financier to bring Defiant back from what he called a hiatus but sadly it would not come to pass Adam. Yep, no reboots, nothing Defiant is truly dead has remained dead. I will tell you I do have that binder of that first issue, you know, the full set of cards and it is a fun read but yeah, I just don't think everybody bought into that concept 
you know what? I think you could probably make that work in today's collectible market right now. I think if, I think if you launched that today, it wouldn't be so bizarre. I think that it would be something that would might catch on. But uh, you know, it had the the market was oversaturated. Can you imagine this thing launching in 1992? We might be all defined fans right now. Who knows? <laughs> Dark Dominion, my favorite. <laughs> All right. Well, gentlemen, I think it's time that we uh, get ourselves into our table of contents and really dive in, just sink our teeth into issue 40, because we actually have two covers for this December 1994 cover date, although it was actually coming out end of October, early November, because this was the Halloween issue. And so on the cover by Greg Capullo, which is actually his second in a row, the previous issue, he had done Angela versus Spawn. And here, this is all the violator and his brothers attacking trick-or-treaters in front of a house and i mean it's just got all the oranges and everything that you'd imagine from a, a halloween image it's very striking this was the version that i had as a kid and this was one of my favorite issues ever so it was fun to go back through this but the second cover kind of less known at this time for the direct market was a sin city cover drawn by frank miller frank miller who would infamously rip an issue of wizard in half at a comic convention while he was speaking within a few years and decry this publication is from hell uh you know so it's kind of interesting that they still were in his good graces at this time i have zero understanding of who this character is on the cover but it's it's all red it's not marv it's somebody from you know his his later run of sin city so i'll put it up on social media you guys can tell me who this could be because it looks like he has a mask but i think that's just the shadows and the way that it's drawn on him he's got a trench coat but it's just all red red and black the full cover it's very striking i mean you're you're talking frank miller it could be anything in that panel you, you might be only assuming that it's a trench coat who knows it's <laughs> It's very true, actually. It's like a Rorschach test, looking at this cover. <laughs> but speaking of Frank Miller, Natural Born Miller. Huh? Anybody? Very big oh, film boy. at the time. Everybody loved their Natural Born Killers, little Woody Harrelson in there. But this was an interview with the creator about his various projects. He had been popular for revamping characters whose books had declined in sales. And about that, Miller says, quote, that's the best time to get a hold of a character. It worked for me on Daredevil and Batman, everybody's willing to take more chances, and you get a lot more leeway. Uh, so that's definitely, you know, those were the two properties that really brought him to prominence. But Miller also discusses his views now on censorship in comics, because, yeah, Sid City is very hard-edged. And he talks about specifically applying an advisory label to books, saying, quote, in nearly every case, it is the book with the advisory label that the police and the parent groups come looking for. It saves them a lot of time I'm trying to figure out what they want to complain about. <laughs> So that's a really interesting thing that, you know, we basically would see from Marvel when they released their Marvel Max imprint, essentially. You know, you yeah. got R-rated comics, basically. That's how you knew it had the advisory on there. It's interesting how, how Frank Miller made his money because, I mean, really, he's just repeated the same theory over and over and over. It's like, take a hero, beat him down to, like, complete submission and rehab him as, like, an older, battle-weary version of himself, you know what I mean? And then X at the book center stage left <laughs> Get in, get out. Well, and it was interesting, yep. too, even with his own creator-owned stuff, like Sin City, you know, he mentions that initially he was trying to just make it like a 
six-part series of eight-page stories that would be in Dark Horse Presents, you know, it would just be like this little, you know, thing that he would do on the side, but then he just, he couldn't stop writing, and so it just quickly grew to this, like, 200-plus page epic story, and then now he's on to the next, you know, a Dave to Kill for, and all these other, like, he just, he can't stop writing Sin City, and it's so popular. Do you want a uh, a Facebook Marketplace update on Sin City? Do you know how much I got the entire Sin City collection for? Ready your seats, comic book fans. So I haggled it for $10 for the entire run. All volumes. Wow. Fantastic. You are welcome. (laughs) Now, what's interesting here, too, is that I guess the interviewer wanted to know his thoughts because Miller, you know, was currently part of the legend loosely imprint it's not really an imprint but it's you know this collection of creators who do creator own books and if they think you're cool enough they being frank miller and john byrne then you can put this easter island head logo on your book right (laughs) it should have been called crusty (laughs) but then at this time malibu is introducing their bravura line of comics so interviewers asking miller he's like do you think that bravura is inspired by the legend imprint and miller instead suggests the quote i think it's fairer to say that we're both responding to image the image guys did us all the great favor of introducing the concept of a talent-based imprint and even the greater favor of showing us that it worked the point is that the image guys did take a chance and certainly for the talent they've made the industry a better place and sure they bug some people a lot because they're so damn cocky about what they do but they've been a real good thing so i just think you know to have frank miller in your corner at this time you know image was taking a lot of crap what is your take on image of the 90s in terms of their impact on the industry do you feel they deserve to be derided for be the lack of content in their books or do you feel like for what they did in that period they should be celebrated i feel like the whole comics industry just kind of tanked by the end of the 90s and it didn't get like resuscitated really get back on its feet till the early 2000s but that's just my impression of it because i i the only book i continued buying throughout the 90s and into the 2000s was an image title and that was spawn that was the only book and i feel like i came back to comics because i felt like spawn felt a bit more high quality to me like the paper felt better it it just felt like you were getting more for your money and and it was darker obviously and then in the early 2000s I was like, whoa, like this, it feels like, you know, comics are kind of cool again. And and the stories are even better than the image comics were in the nineties at that point. So you had great art and great stories, but that was my impression of it. And now Spawn is number one again. I mean, he's number one at this time. He's back on top. So way to go, Todd. I think when you, when you talk about images place in the industry, I think that it really did shake all the trees. You got to understand to really appreciate where image came from, where the industry was was at the time it was safe it was homogenous you know we had some breakout stars that were happening but they were held back they were restrained and everybody could feel it you know what i mean you had todd mcfarland who was disgruntled because he wanted to do certain things in spider-man they wouldn't let him loose you had rob liefeld just exploding with multiple cable ideas you know what i mean you had jim lee who was drawing the crap out of stuff all these different people who were emerging at the same exact time and they just up and walked out of the big company marvel like what a statement they made So number one, it showed people that, hey, we don't need to stay in this hamster wheel. We do not always need to live and die by Marvel. We can actually make money on our own. And that was the big trend. This is what kicked off, you know, really create our own rights. You had that back in the day with Epic. 
You know what I mean? Where Marvel sort of, you know, shorthanded you and saying, yeah, go ahead and, you know, publish your own book. And then they didn't promote it. And then they, you know, distribution was garbage. And, you you know, you had people who started books like Jim Starlin on Dreadstar. And he only got like six or 12 issues in and he just pulled the stuff out of it and was like, you know, this is a waste of my time. So it was giving people freedom, but not really still holding them to, you know, their disciplines at Marvel. So they broke free. And boy, did they break free because all of a sudden they had these bombastic computerized coloring like Marvel. Marvel Comics and an Image Comics side by side. Image looked amazing. High quality, high quality artwork. Uh, the most popular artist. Like it was a rock star celebration. It was it was really a revolution in comics. And I think it really, really, you know, shattered that glass ceiling. And I think when it comes to their legend or, you know, what they left as the industry, I think shattering that glass ceiling and just showing people that, you know, we don't have to work for the big two to make money and be successful. And I think, yeah. you know, that's their, that's their, that's their way to go. I, I would agree. And, you know, for me, like you know content of the books aside i would say just like you touched on chris just the quality of comic books not being on newsprint anymore and just yes. like the look of comic books improved significantly because of what they were doing and it showed yes people will pay more for a quality book because yeah those books were expensive at the time but it was worth it and, and so yeah I, I think that is their greatest legacy if you know if not storytelling and yes art to a certain degree but even that is mocked in many ways these days so to just say they had an impact on creator rights and the quality of, of actual printing and publishing that's fantastic but uh following up here on frank miller's thoughts on censorship you know it's inevitable every couple of years you gotta cover dr frederick wortham's book uh, seduction uh, of the innocent uh and its effect ouch. on the comic book industry in the 50s you want to hear that guy's name again I know. We don't need it. But the reason that I decided to discuss this briefly is that William Christensen and Mark Seifert, the writers of this article, and it is in depth, I will tell you, they cover Wortham's entire career and they really kind of dig into, okay, here's where like all the fallacies were to his arguments. Specifically, like they find fault in his research because his conclusion said, yes, the juvenile delinquent children of the era he dealt with admitted to reading comics. So he's like, yeah, they're juvenile delinquents. And they said they got their ideas from comics to do these crimes. But then you have to look. There were hundreds of thousands of other children reading comics at the time who did not become criminals. So just from a numbers perspective, it doesn't make sense. But obviously, he also never admitted that he was the one who failed as a psychiatrist since he didn't properly treat these children. You know, like he was saying, like, I knew them since they were very young and they grew up to be delinquents. They had problems. It's like... Yes, and you didn't help them? Like, I don't know what he would have done, but it's just, it was the comics that were the unstoppable <laughs> evil that, you know, he could uh, use as his scapegoat. Well, so interesting because in the 80s then it's like you know especially in britain they they then dubbed you know a certain number of horror films the video nasties it's yes. like well we tried attacking the comics what's next and then i think in the 90s or maybe in the 2000s i they attack video games now right mm -hmm. like that's the new the new uh target yeah it's, now, it's always now, something now, now let's let's be fair here with video games <laughs> i mean i've seen my my 12 year old son playing some uh shady shady games 
games, like clubbing senior citizens with baseball bats multiple times till his skull fractures all over the ground. So, <laughs> hey, you know, may, maybe there may be a little something here. You know, I'm just saying. Well, yeah, and, and that, that's the thing is Wortham totally ignored the responsibility of the parents that you should be monitoring what your children are reading or playing or whatever uh, instead of placing the blame yes. on the publishers who created them. At the time, yes, they're creating crime comics with content that is saying crime doesn't pay, but it's showing it graphically what the crimes are. But those were meant for adults because they mention here the readership had grown during World War II of adult comic book readers. And then there's also the fact like that I found most interesting after all, you know, the witch hunts and the burning of comics and any of that. Wortham continued his research into the 70s and his final publication was a book called The World of Fanzines, where he praised the comic book fans who published their own articles about comics, but were writing about them from an academic point of view. So he did this like complete 180 on whether comics were bad for people because he said like, oh, look at what it's done for them. It's given them this community and this place where they can express themselves intelligently. And so you just have to think, had he lived into the 90s, Frederick Wortham might have been Wizard's biggest fan. He might have even might have had his own column, you know, Freddy's fanzine, you know, whatever. He'd be t- pointing you to all the other uh, publications that he loved reading in the 70s. <laughs> Now, Mike, I know you said, you know, early on, your dad was a major comic book collector. Did he ever have any backlash, you know, in, in the era before we were all collecting that he found negativity or anything towards comics? He, he was born in 1955, so okay. he, he was born after all this. So he he grew up in the time of like, you know, cheesy Jimmy Olsen comics and but also the, Mar- you know, the Marvel comics like Spider-Man and everything. But I think the only thing he really faced was just a bit of teasing from other kids. Or, or from his his parents thinking it was trash he was reading, but like you know, he now owns Amazing Fantasy fifteen and X Men one and Avengers one. So who's laughing now? Yeah, know? I mean that's amazing. <laughs> So, now, this is interesting because as a companion piece to the Wortham discussion, they have this Halloween-themed article, essentially, this is perfect for you, Mike, A Tale from the Crypt, which was an exploration of horror comics throughout the years. So, you know, they mentioned, you know, the EC comics, horror stories from the 50s, which those were groundbreaking in their artistry and the twist endings, and, the, you know, a lot of them were, you know, based in literary stories they would kind of adapt, and there were some Ray Bradbury stories they eventually paid him for, but they say, quote, a series of bad imitations, horror comics lacking good artistry and finesse, graphic, unimaginative portrayals of dead and dismembered bodies littered the pages of comics from publishers who wanted to ride EC's coattails. So this is what led to, you know, the congressional hearings and the witch hunt of the industry that Dr. Wortham was leading. And then the readers are also being reminded that, remember, Marvel was in the monster comic game themselves under the Atlas banner before Stan Lee broke the mold of Fantastic Four and we got the Marvel Universe. So it's interesting that, you know, at this time, Marvel had actually just put out a collection called Monster Masterworks, which was a fun play on their Marvel Masterworks hardcover collections, which I coveted. There was a guy I played freshman football with, and I went to his house after practice one day, and he had every Marvel Masterworks volume that had been released up to that point just this huge bookshelf and i was like what how did you get these but i'm curious for you uh, guys have you guys ever gone back and read some of those 50s horror comics have you ever been able to find like reprints or seen actual originals 
DC comics were, you know, depending on where you look, have been collected in various editions. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And some of these things, especially the earlier ones, Adam, are extremely graphic. You know what I mean? They didn't they didn't hold back. Now, as time went on, uh, you got to see some changes in the format. I don't know if it was pressures from the industry or whatever, but there was still a degree of, you know, excessive violence throughout the entire thing. So, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of one and done stories, a lot of these, you know, single issues featured three to four different stories in each one, you know, probably, you know, five to six pages each, this type of thing, almost like an anthology type uh, type books, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So. Now, as, as as Marvel took over, you know, they were doing their, you know, Tomb of Dracula and their monster series and all that stuff in the late 70s into the 80s and all that type of stuff. And they changed the game because they took, you know, your your uh, werewolf by night and your Draculas and all your classic Hollywood monster villains and and they just redid them but i mean ec was dealing with you know everything from zombies to skeletons to just you know creatures like monsters you know any anything you can name i mean they were literally creating the genre so i mean you know you really got to tip your hat to EC for a lot of because I mean they took inspiration from monster movies at the time you know what I mean right. the old the old serials and different things but they took it to a new level because a lot of this stuff you couldn't show on a movie screen at the time so mm-hmm. they pushed boundaries back then but yeah you know what if you if you dug deep you can find a lot of these in collected editions and uh, you only need to buy one to get the whole uh, idea of what EC was doing at the time because mm-hmm. they were breaking every rule there was the break well and it's interesting that you mentioned that you know because it was also this whole idea that William Gaines who was you know, running EC at that point, he decides, okay, well, we're getting out of this. We're getting into Mad Magazine because they can't you know, tell us what to do with magazines. You know, that falls under a different category. And then in the 70s, eventually these horror magazines start coming up with comics featuring Vampirella, and then there were, the titles were Creepy and Eerie, which was more of that, except that in this article they say that they strayed from the EC path because they included imagery that had been banned for 15 years, particularly some nudity and graphic horror that would have never made it even in the 50s um so so there's definitely that whole era right there of the 70s horror magazines and then it started getting a little more sophisticated right in the 80s because you had swamp thing was considered a horror title artists steve Bissett and john toddleben were working on that book and then they started a book-sized anthology of adult horror stories called taboo where they said quote there were no restrictions about subject matter the only restriction in fact was that you create something that would break a kind of taboo and uh, alan moore himself eventually did that with uh, with some of his books that he would do is that were covered and promoted in wizard you're like oh okay <laughs> fairy tale characters mm, okay i see what you're doing here mr moore uh but the, as a result the book was banned in england and canada due to old regulations outlawing american crime and horror comics uh, of course, in the 90s now, Vertigo had taken up the, you know, the torch there of horror, and they are mo- mostly like, you know, they are adult-themed comics with horror elements, you know, but they, again, Neil Gaiman, Sandman, and stuff like that, they were very well regarded. So it was interesting to see the evolution of how that was all taken eventually. But, uh, Mike, you said you're into horror movies. Did you ever read horror comics? Here's the funny thing. I, I am a huge horror fan, and I have about, like, 600 horror movies on Blu-ray and DVD. Nice. And, Adam, I do have quite a few horror VHS tapes as well. I know Ooh, you're uh-oh. Yes. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, but, but you know what? The comic books, I didn't really get into. I will say, remember I told you in my, my story about the comics being stolen? I had four boxes not stolen. Two of the boxes were my horror comics. I, I do have 
a few boxes of horror comics. You know, I was collecting Spawn, obviously. I also collected Hellboy in the late 90s as well. But I never got into these EC comics. I just, maybe it's just because I didn't have access to them or whatnot. But um, the only stuff I'd really get were like adaptations or uh, if Clive Barker was involved in a comic, I'd always have to get whatever, you know, any yes. Hellraiser comics, Nightbreed comics. I was obsessed with Pinhead, had a short run. But otherwise, I never really dip my toe. I keep them pretty separate. I'm like superheroes for comic books and and horror for movies. So I don't know. (laughs) You mentioned Vampirella before, Vampirella magazine, okay? One of my friends had Vampirella. And if you have ever seen a Vampirella magazine from the 70s, it is all the way live, baby. It is black and white. (laughs) It is delicious on the inside. Let me tell you how I how I broke into the the 80s after reading Vampirella. I'm telling you, I was I was partially blind. I had one arm bigger than the other, multiple socks missing. I mean, this stuff was amazing, Adam. So, I mean, let me tell you something. I'm not going to tell you what it's all about, but uh, if I'm going to recommend something back in the day, grab an issue of Vampirella. Wow! And I, and I have mentioned this previously on the podcast, but Vampirella, you can read those original comics on archive.org. Go search it. Somebody scanned them and uploaded them. So if you want to find out what Chris is talking about <laughs> from the safety of your phone. <laughs> what, what is that address again? Yes. <laughs> archive.org. Archive.vampirella.org. All right. But uh, we were talking about Vertigo earlier, and Fables Reflections is an interview with Neil Gaiman, who, as the introduction states, quote, was not by his own admission all that keen on doing an interview for Wizard. <laughs> He had no interest. He admits that he was doing it to get respect from his eight-year-old son, which is the same reason he did the Angela story in Spawn number nine, and then the Angela miniseries that he's working on, which uh, he, he mentions his son quote, thinks it's a terrible pity that his father, who writes comics and doesn't write any for him, why don't you write an X-Men? I'd be proud of you if you could write an X-Men. <laughs> so Neil gave it no respect at home. I feel so bad. <laughs> when you start getting into this article, you realize just how much ground Gaiman was covering in the world of comics, because he's talking about, you know, his work on Sandman at DC, Miracle Man for Eclipse Comics, which at that point was in legal limbo because he wasn't being paid and all this stuff. His upcoming project, Mr. Hero at Techno Comics and an Alice Cooper comic book at Marvel. Though it was interesting about that particular project, he said that he and the artists on the book had to personally pay $10 extra per page to get the letterer that they wanted on the project because quote marvel is a very nickel and dime company very cheap (laughs) i just think it was so funny that he was just gonna lay it on the line right there Plus, he's also got a book of short stories out at this time, and as we know, the guy just never slowed down. Like, he continues to write best-selling books that then inspire TV shows and stuff like that. So, for you guys, big Neil Gaiman fans, are you reading much of his stuff? Does he fit into what you enjoy about comics? I feel like I've only touched on Gaiman as far as comics. Like, honestly, Sandman, I only picked up and read for the first time, I think, like six months ago. And I only read the first four issues. So very new to Gaiman as far as comics go. I even actually I found in a dollar bin a few weeks ago uh, his first published work in Hellblazer. I think it is. It's like uh, like issue 27 or something. Oh. So I'm looking forward to reading that. I have that in my massive pile of stuff to read. But I'm more of into his books. Like the Graveyard book is one of my favorite 
of his. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's like a kid who's like orphaned and, and is raised by all the, the ghosts in the cemetery because his parents were killed by a murderer. It, it's pretty cool. But yeah, not not that I, I need to get more into Gaiman as far as his his work in comics. I, I'm not as familiar. I do. I do love his Angela, though, in, in Spawn. And it, I was so disappointed when him and, and Todd had that big falling out and Todd lost uh, Angela to eventually now Marvel. But yeah. Um, yeah, literally, yeah. literally, Gaiman almost took uh, took Todd McFarlane downtown to Chinatown. I mean, uh, he literally <laughs> yeah. almost ended his career with that lawsuit. So, I mean, you know, he took a large chunk out of McFarlane's enterprise with that whole lawsuit. It was huge. The one thing I wanted to mention also is I have a friend who is sending me his 90s comic book collection, and it's he just cost a shipping. He's like, Adam, I got to clear this stuff out. And what? one of the things that is in there is Sandman number one. <laughs> and I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, he's telling me, he's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's in there, dude. I was like, what? So that's, that's going to be wild. That's a good friend. friend. He is is a great friend. Uh, Galen, shout out to you, buddy. He always takes care of me. I think when you're talking about gaming, I think there's a certain, like, almost like a snobbery when it comes to his work. You know what I mean? I think Sandman became that book that, you know, comic book fans defected to when they wanted to get a little bit more highbrow. You know what I mean? Back in the, uh, back in the nineties and different things, like it became one of these things where, you know, I read Sandman. I don't read your garbage uh, (laughs) Spider-Man comic. You know what I mean? Now for me, I was never a real, like I really didn't get the whole Sandman, the ideal, you know what I mean? I, it, it didn't interest me. You know, I I have a few of the trades like the high cost of death and different things like that. I mean, I, 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 I think I understand the purpose of it, but it's just not entertaining reading. The only thing, that I really liked by Neil Gaiman was something called the, I think it was called the DC Universe, and it was basically just almost like a hardcover edition of, you know, eight of his old stories where he dealt with the Batman villains. And if you can find that, it's really, really cool. So, I mean, you know, it's got the Riddler, Two-Face, the Penguin, all written by Neil Gaiman. That's some interesting stuff. It's called the DC Universe by Neil Gaiman. Check it out. Cool, yeah, because so, I was going to say, I can appreciate, like, I've read some Gaiman stories, of the, a couple volumes of Sandman, and I'm like, this is very good writing, it's clever, things turn in on themselves, right. plot threads are resolved, you, you do a great job of doing all that, but yeah, it's very dry, it's not really that entertaining. The one time I thought he was going to get me was 1612 at Marvel, where, yeah. where, you know, it's like, oh, old-timey Marvel heroes, okay, this is going to be cool, and it just it didn't do it for me, unfortunately. So, Finally here, the other Batman is an interview with the creative team behind the very popular Batman Adventures comic book based on the look of the animated series, but according to writer Kelly Puckett, it differs because in these stories, Batman's, quote, more of a force than a character. You don't sympathize with the Batman and Batman Adventures. You admire him. He said another difference that he highlights is, quote, simply the elimination of any subplots, (laughs) which basically means that every issue is self-contained. There's not like a runner. There's not a thread that goes throughout the whole series, which is what they attribute the sales success of the series to, because they're saying, you know, kids can really get in on it. They see it on on TV, then they go on the stands and they grab a book and it's a single story and they like it. It's easy to understand. But also they're getting praise, especially from older readers who like that straight ahead, silver age style of storytelling, the one and done. And then the big news at this time they're saying is that with issue number 25, 
five, they have Superman as the first ever guest star in the Batman Adventures book, and they hope to have other characters like the Creeper and Mr. Miracle appear in the near future. Are you guys familiar with the Batman Adventures book? Did you ever pick that up? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I did pick up several issues of that. I mean, fun stuff. Like, uh, like none of it is in continuity or anything. But I mean, if you're just if you're interested in that universe, it was re- extremely faithful to the cartoon. Uh, you know, it was a good extension. And you know, if you were interested in that cartoon, man, I'm telling you, it expanded that universe. So you know, I, I was all about it at the time for sure. I never got it as a kid. I just I didn't understand it. I was like, I could just watch the cartoon. What what are they doing here? You, it didn't make sense that anyone would need it. I now have an appreciation for it, and uh, you know, I would really like to get my hands on that uh, Harley Quinn issue someday. Yeah, you know? the Mad Love. Yeah, that was just a big like, one. I like the simplicity of the artwork. You know what I mean? You don't need mm-hmm. to be extremely detailed to get your point across, and I think that was the the strength. You know, it could be for all ages because you know the the adults certainly got the idea behind the Batman animated series, and kids got it as well. It was easy to read, easy to follow. It was similar to um, you know the old Super Friends comic back in. 70s or uh, Spidey Super Stories, you know what I mean? Very straightforward, simple stories. Sometimes they got a little bit too mobby. I don't know if you found that with the Batman animated series. Like, there was a lot of mob action, and I never cared for those. I always wanted the villain of the week. Give me my damn Joker, my Riddler. <laughs> I, I don't want mob boss, you know, Dracone or whatever. I, I don't care about that. Yeah, what's funny is for me, like, the only... I, I never picked up those issues, but I, I had a subscription to Batman Superman magazine, and in Ooh. there, that was before Batman Adventures came out. So that was the first place you got that Bruce Timm-style artwork in comic book form so i said they would just be like little like four or five page stories but that was always exciting for me because i was like oh this is the extension and then yeah that one happened and by that i was kind of over it but you know what i'm never over mike go into a film i love to see a flick so why don't you take us into heroes in motion All right. First up, the Batman Adventures article featured a sidebar titled Clipped Wings, announcing that Batman the Animated Series had been canceled because the show had reached the required number of episodes to go into syndication. Both Bruce Timm and Paul Dini are interviewed about the sadness associated with the end of their program. Dini has a very Seinfeld perspective when he says, I'd rather have it end now than just limp along and we milk it for what we can get out of it. Bruce Timm states that I don't think we ever did a really good Penguin story, and I wish we would have done Robin as a bratty young Spider-Man. Dini also laments the fact that even after winning an Emmy with the Mr. Freeze episode, Heart of Ice, the network mandated that no more episodes could focus on the villains. Instead, the stories had to have more Batman and Robin and not be too dark. To me, it was very clear that the the show, I liked the show, but I was more of an X-Men fan. But it really, those first, like, what is it, like 26 episodes are fantastic. And I just can't, I never find myself going back to 
the following episodes. I, do you guys feel that way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean they're they're hard to watch. They changed the character models, and the, yeah, it just became simpler. And yeah, it just it wasn't it wasn't emotionally complex. That's what we loved about the early seasons. And and when they changed the the actual design style, that, that just drove me nuts as a kid. Now I don't mind it as much, but still back then I was like, what happened? Why are they so like Catwoman had like a white face? It was really strange. I have an admission. Okay. I, I like the later episodes. I like the ones where Robin and Batgirl got together. I, I admit it. I admit it. I, I, am, <laughs> I love the inclusion the of Batgirl in the trio. I think really? that's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, but the, the like I said, the first few episodes, especially the first few episodes, a little bit too mobby, a little bit too you know we're trying to trying to be really Gothamy, and there wasn't enough like high adventure, just Batman fighting villains, and that's really what I tuned in for. I, you know. I, I don't care about the mob, and I don't care about the evil underbelly of, of the crime element in uh, in Gotham City. I, I just want villains, and, and yeah. like the Joker. I need more Joker, more Riddler. And boy, did they, those other episodes, when it came, when Robin joined the group, you know, Mr. Freeze and Two-Face, and everybody joined in, and there was a lot more superhero-y action. And I think my kids really, really enjoyed, like, the Batman and Robin adventure end of it. Yeah, see, I think I, think I preferred the dark. And speaking of dark, with the success of The Mask and Time Cop, Dark Horse Comics is apparently trying to get more of their comics to the big screen. Projects in development include Black Cross, The Machine, Barbed Wire, and Pitbulls, as well as Church League, Virus, and Paul Chadwick's Concrete. Of these projects, only Barbed Wire and Virus got produced, and I cannot believe that a Concrete movie almost got made. That would have been amazing. Although, Barbed Wire and Virus are almost unwatchable, in my opinion. I, I <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Concrete would have been fantastic had they found a way to do it right, but it's it's a very lackadaisical kind of series, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not action-packed, yeah. so I'm very curious as to where they could have taken it, really. Yeah. I'll tell you what really would have happened. It would have been Roger Corman's Concrete. That's what would have happened. <laughs> With that thing rubber suit turned gray. That's all there it would you have go. Been. Speaking of the thing, it's official. Chris Columbus will direct a big-budget Fantastic Four movie, or so it's reported in this issue, it's also revealed that the producer who allowed Roger Corman to make his Fantastic Four movie only financed the project to hold on to the rights. But of course, the Chris Columbus helmed FF project never happens and Marvel's first family doesn't hit the big screen until 2005. And by that point, by the way, in 2005, Wizard goes crazy with the Jessica Alba covers. Oh, she is like God. the number one cover <laughs> model for like a year. <laughs> Even when she's not in the Sue Storm costume. It's just like Alba, Alba, Alba. I felt like the guy who discovered that indie band because I was watching her in Dark Angel and I was like, oh, yeah, it's Jessica Alba. And like, don't go looking at my girl, you people. You weren't, you weren't <laughs> in the club like me. You weren't first. All right. In other never produced movie news, Mike Barron and Steve Rude's Nexus is slated to become a Hanna-Barbera animated feature. And Zen, the intergalactic ninja, will be a live action film directed by Brian Usna, who created Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. But he also directed some of my favorite movies, uh, Return of the Living Dead Part 3 and uh, Bride of Reanimator. And he was the producer on Reanimator. I, I, I'm a huge nice. Brian Usna fan. So I, it's really disappointing pointing knowing he never made that for me he was involved in the giver and oh, i yeah. love yes. the giver and he was the producer on that as well so when i saw his name i was like i mean i probably would have liked zed the intergalactic ninja because he would have helped to make it weird <laughs> 
Adam, this is going back to a previous episode where you guys were talking about Faust. Do you remember? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. I think it, I, I know I owned it at one time on DVD. He ended up, I, I'm pretty sure he directed it too, but, but I know he produced a Faust movie and it is, it's wacko. Like I never really watched, <laughs> I didn't care to watch it too much. So I ended up selling it. Yeah. I just wanted to bring it back to some previous episode that you had spoken yeah, about. Yeah. I, I still, I've been meaning to track it down and buy a copy just to see it once. Cause yeah, what, what madness lies therein? <laughs> I shouldn't have sold it. <laughs> All right, next up, The Phantom, starring Billy Zane, is announced as in production, though maybe it would have been better if this one was never made. <laughs> oh, come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in some people's opinion, I will tell you, I have my copy of The Phantom over here with the lenticular cover on That's VHS. Slamming evil, slamming yes. that evil. <laughs> You know, I, I have friends that that's like they, that's like their favorite superhero movie. So I can't I can't actually put it down. I know, and and my love of the shadow is well documented. They're basically on the same level in terms of quality in most people's no, eyes. So. Shadow is much better. I thank love you, it. thank you. Shadow is fantastic. I got my collector's edition Blu-ray on Woo-hoo! my. Show. Don't worry. <laughs> I think it all sounded great on paper. Oh, you're going to be a great pulp hero. We're going to cast you as the Phantom. It's going to be great. And then they hand him the costume, and he's like, what the? (laughs) I appreciate it for its accuracy. I like it for comic accurate costume. Agreed. All right, finally, Spider-Man, the animated series, will debut with one episode in November of 1994, then get added to the Saturday morning Fox Kids lineup starting in February 1995. It's revealed that a three-part alien costume saga will be part of the first season with the change that the symbiote is substance from a meteorite that hitches a ride to Earth on a spaceship, which is the origin used for all future live-action appearances of Venom, which that's... Honestly, the origin of Venom that I know best is because of the cartoon, personally. I mean, I got my Secret Wars number eight over here, but yeah, most people, Secret (laughs) Wars, you know, if you weren't around in the 80s or shortly thereafter, that isn't the origin you know. Yeah, my dad read me a lot of comics and he never got into reading that to me as a kid. So honestly, my entry was the action figures and this cartoon for Venom. Still to this day, I think of the origin as that. Well, and I, I've been raising my kids right, I'm telling you. So I've, I've read to my son many, many stories involving the original origin what-if stories, and I even got the Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars audio adaptation. So he listened to that on a road trip, and so he knows where Spider-Man got the black costume originally. <laughs> Good father. Good father. All right, Chris. You know, there was uh, more than one way to get us to fork over a few bucks at the comic book store, so why don't you take us in? Too. Guy Gardner's gimmicks a go go. How bizarre! All right, we're going to talk about gimmicks, some of my favorite stuff in the world. And guess what, guys? At this time, gimmicks. We're, believe it or not, few and far between these days because aside from Marvel offering enhanced covers, including Rogue Number 1, which featured, get ready for this, a cardstock foil-stamped cover and glossy paper. That's really not too far ahead of the box there, guys. Silver Surfer Number 100, Silver Surfer always had the greatest gimmick covers, featured a circular hologram 
sticker of Norrin Rad surfing the spaceways. That one's epic. You really got to take a look at that. Hulk would not be forgotten, though. Hulk number 425 had a hologram silhouette of Bruce Banner as he transformed into, of course, the Incredible Hulk. Now, meanwhile, over at the Distinguished Competition at DC Comics, they're selling Batman Bloodstorm as a 96-page hardcover with a retail price of $24.95. How about that for a gimmick? Woof. Yeah, I know. A 96-page hardcover is the gimmick, folks. There you go. You heard it here first. Now, Wizard, they're not going to be let go, folks. You know, they're getting in on the gimmick game as well. And boy, they actually did probably better than a lot of the comic book companies were doing because, you know, gimmicks were their name of the game especially in this era, and they were doing an issue which contained a mail-away offer for an exclusive wizard half-issue featuring Mark Silvestri's Ripclaw from Cyberforce. And I will tell you, Chris, I, I do have that right here. I have the Ripclaw half, and the art is by Dave Finch. So David Finch obviously went on to have quite a career, but this is you know, some of his earlier work, and it's pretty impressive. It's, it's a very basic story. It's just about like Ripclaw going back to his Native American roots, and basically like they're like, you've been brainwashed by your cyber force corporation or whoever you work for. You've forgotten what it is to be in touch with the land. It's all that kind of stuff. And he kind of wakes up out of his haze. I, I don't know where it takes place in the continuity, but he's kind of fighting all these spiritual ghosts of nature as kind of what he is being attacked by in this issue. Boy, you just killed my excitement for that book. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Now, Wizard, not to be forgotten again, is also promoting a special issue of How to Collect Comics that is only going to be sold in Toys R Us stores. Now, it serves as a starter introduction to the world of comics that were in 1994. Now, I think there was an in-special insert, which, uh, Chapter 1, In Bed with Companies, and we'll promote them as long as... No, (laughs) never mind. Wait a second. Hold on a minute. Wait a minute here. Uh, Now, also advertised in this issue, Wizard 1995 Comic Book Price Guide, which is meant to give the Overstrike Price Guide a run for its money by including, get this, get ready for this, free four awesome Marvel X-Men trading cards. Love it. Listen, I'm, I'm all about the gimmicks, baby. So originally, I was uh, talking to Mike about doing this How to Collect Comics as like a bonus episode, but as I got into it, it's so basic that there really is nothing to talk about, you know? And, and you're not wrong, Chris, because there are ads for Cyberforce. The back cover is a profit, you know, coming monthly from Extreme Studios ad, you know? And there's just all sorts of stuff in here where they just give you like one or two pages that are just like very quick hits of, oh, you know, did you know that comics are turned into trading cards? Did you know there have been comic book movies? Do you know who makes these comics? People like Neil Adams and Mark Bagley? Like, they have little profiles and just like, you know, quick overview of each major publisher, so Dark Horse and Valiant and Malibu and Image and everybody gets their two pages to tell you what they do, what makes them special. But yeah, it's, it's a very, very thin and basic book to get those kids who didn't know yet, who weren't aware of Wizard, in on the game. Let's be clear. I mean, in a wizard literally set the benchmark for comic book value as well. If they deem something hot, they literally set a book on fire just by by its mention. If they said a book was number one on their top ten list, that book was instantly, literally, worth money back 
back in the day. That's how powerful Wizard Magazine was back in the day. And speaking of which, at this time, as this episode has come out, you will have heard the Wizard Files interview with Lars Pearson, who was the price guide manager at Wizard, and he spills the beans on what it was really all about, how they gathered the pricing, was it accurate, were they trying to promote certain books, and all those mandates that may or may not have existed, but everybody likes to, you know, assume that they did. So hope you enjoyed that discussion. If you haven't heard it yet, go back. You're like, who's this Lars Pearson? Lars was in the know. All right. So it's time for Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Todd's ego column this month is titled, What's Coming Next? Which finds Todd promising his collaboration with Greg Capullo on Spawn doesn't mean he'll stop drawing comics. He's not just passing it off to somebody else. It's going to allow him to not get burned out and last even longer penciling comics. Uh, Speaking of which, Mike, so how long did he last after Greg Capullo came on? Well, Todd wrote. He continued writing. Like, I collected till about 190, and now he's writing again, so he's back on it yeah but i mean was he usually just writing though and he let greg capullo do the art or was he doing layouts or do you know i don't know he wasn't doing layouts he was doing inking he would ink okay. Capullo's work. And, and in my opinion, I think Capullo's best work is when Todd inks his stuff. Like, I, I cannot. I love his work on Batman from New 52, but I actually I don't love the inker he works with. Hmm. I think McFarlane is his best inker. Interesting. OK, there, there's a team. Now, uh, Todd also announces once again the Neil Gaiman Angela miniseries and that he's hopeful there will be a medieval spawn series coming after that written by Neil Gaiman. And did that ever happen? No. Okay. <laughs> what it done? Get the action figure. Enjoy. Alan Moore is said to be writing a six-issue miniseries about Spawn as a vampire? I, huh? <laughs> Do you remember this storyline? He did Spawn Blood Feud. That's probably what he's okay. talking That's That would be my guess. Then also announced in the toy realm is the Wetworks action figures that are on the way for McFarlane Toys, inspired by the Wills Portacio comic book, and possibly Shadowhawk and Savage Dragon as well. Although I don't think those ever got produced, did they? Yeah, I'm pretty Through sure. Through McFarlane? McFarlane did, like, later on. I don't know if he did a Shadowhawk early on, but he definitely did this 20th anniversary of Image where he did a Shadowhawk, a Savage Dragon, another Spawn, and then probably, like, Ripclaw or something. Yeah, what about this? Because he also says there is going to be a 12-inch series of figures, but because you're paying more, they're going to add more features to give you more value. Was there 12-inch Spawn figures? I know the Mel what is it, Malbolgia figure, I, which I have in my garage still. Mm-hmm. He, he's pretty tall, but it, I, oh, he, I think he did. I, I, I honestly don't remember this. We, uh, the only thing I focused on it in the later 90s was his Movie Maniacs toy line. Oh, okay. But he definitely did Wetworks figures. Yeah, see, I remember seeing those on the shelves, definitely. that that was They were on the pegs a lot, because everybody's like, Wetworks, huh? <laughs> Thinking back, there was the Savage Dragon line of toys that were done by maybe Playmates. Yeah, for like the, the animated series like, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, we're going to have to ask at 
Pogo Man, aka Spawn Hunter, on Twitter about that? If you are listening, you are always chiming in when we have these questions. So show us on your many, many shelves of Spawn paraphernalia and mainly action figures. If there are 12 inch Spawn figures from the 90s, let us know about that. And finally, there was the Spawn video game, which I remember did come out as well. I never played it, but I remember seeing that box art and being like, oh, that's cool. Speaking of the Playmates figures, the only Jim Lee news is a photo of the Playmates Wildcats action figures in the toying around section, but it's not even like talking about them. It's just like, hey, here's those figures. Don't they look great? (laughs) But they don't elaborate. But Overall, in this entire issue, Jim only gets name-checked once in Todd's ego column, in his competition, in this tally. But with that, is it enough for Jim Lee to keep his lead? Because in this issue, Jim Lee has one mention, Todd has seven, which brings our total to Jim Lee 243, Todd McFarlane 244. He has triumphed. It only took 40 issues, but Todd McFarlane has now usurped both Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee in this tally. He is champion. I'm going to be the king of the media. <laughs> oh, and it's only going to keep going from here. This is this is going to be a good run for Todd, because Jim is out of the picture on sabbatical, and it's going to be Todd, Todd, Todd. So, woo! Congrats, Todd McFarlane. You've done it, boy. A fellow Canadian gentleman. He was playing the Canadian long game. That's what he was doing. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of the long game, you know, this has been quite an episode. I think I really enjoyed your input and everything here, but I think uh, we got to go out with a couple laughs here, at least a laughs that Wizard hoped to deliver. So it's time to get into Turok's Top 10. So this is the top 10 rejected names for the third Batman flick. Now, are you ready for this? Are you sitting down? Because hilarity is about to ensue as I unveil number 10 of the top 10 rejected names for the third Batman flick is, hey, look, everybody, it's Batman. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) I know. Hilarious. They're working hard on that one. But number nine, Batman does it. Huh? (laughs) Does he? He does it? Number eight is Batman Strike Three. I just, I don't. Get it because of the bat. Like, it's a baseball. Oh, God. (laughs) Now, number seven is great. It's called, you bet your ass it's Batman. (laughs) That feels like that's something that would come out on HBO Max now. Hey, you bet your ass it's Batman. Like a companion show to the the Harley Quinn animated series. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Number six, Willow. Because Val Kilmer was in Willow, and now he's Batman. Interrupt this storyline. It, Willow is that movie that I always wanted to love, okay? I always wanted to love Willow, but uh, it was one of those movies I left, you know, bragging about, oh, I just love Willow, such a great movie. I secretly hate that thing. Oh, no! Can't stand it. Can't stand Mad it. I, Mad I, again! I faked loving Willow as a kid. I faked it. 
And now I'm here to admit here on the Wizards podcast right here that I'm a phony Willow Watcher. How about that? That is rough. So many great lines. Help! There's a peck with an acorn pointed at me! <laughs> All right, number five. Oh, I'm a Canadian. I don't know Spanish. How do I even say this? <laughs> Batman esta en la casa. Maybe, maybe you could translate for us. Chris, you got it? I think it means Batman. We're not even being close to funny. I think that's what it means. <laughs> Well, I grew up very close to the Mexican border, and I can tell you it's Batman in the house. Oh, no. That's terrible. (laughs) Speaking of terrible, how about number four with four weddings and a Batman? (laughs) Starring Hugh Grant and a hooker. What? Who? What? Who? What? Allegedly. Allegedly. Number three, Batman goes to France. Doesn't he? What the the third uh, Nolan Batman movie? Doesn't he end up in France at the end, or is that they were just ahead of their time? They could yes. see into the future, sitting at outdoor cafe. Is is it shameful to say I'd like to see that? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's Batman, Batman goes to France here. All right. Uh, number two is Jurassic Batman. I presume that would have been uh, how he ended up with the dinosaur in his cave. Is that yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I got you. That is funny. Speaking of funny, you guys ready for number one? One. one. <laughs> the number one most hilarious top ten rejected name for a third Batman flick is Abbott and Costello's Corpse Meet Batman. Okay. You guys save that one for last, Wizard. Come on, you you had some good stuff in there. You could you could have mixed up the order there. I I still say Willow. Willow should have been your number one. (laughs) (laughs) Whether or not Chris loves the movie. Well, guys, this has been so much fun. Really, thank you for coming on here and pinch hitting for Michael and Steven as they're off in movie land. But uh, why don't you tell the folks out there where they can find you online? Chris, take it away. All right. You can find me over on the Twitter arguing with other trolls about the the virtues of GoBots over Transformers. And if you want to hear me on the old podcast front, you can find me over on the Chris and Reggie Network. I'm over with Mr. Christian, and we are covering ElfQuest, the epic Marvel run and over on our podcast called Questerday. So hit up hashtag Questerdays over on Twitter. You'll find all our episodes there. Uh, and it's also on all your podcatchers as well. So check it out. Look for Questerdays. As well, you can find some wrestling reviews over on the um, W2M network where myself and Mark Radlich and a host of others talk about professional wrestling in all its glory. So there you go. That's Chris Bailey, Charlton Hero. I'm out of here. Pure entertainment. And Mike, if people want to see your collection daily, where can they find you? Well, if you want comics, you can find me at 50 Cent Comic Collector. Although, like I said, I may have to change my name if I keep buying these dollar (laughs) books. Um, But if you like horror movies and cartoons of the 80s and 90s, you can also find me at Cartoon and Horror on Instagram where I post horror movie pictures and all the blu-rays i own and po- i own i own a huge collection of horror movie posters so you can see those and of course if you want more from wizards the podcast guide to comics be sure to follow us on twitter at wizards comics on instagram at wizards underscore comics subscribe to our youtube channel of course by this point you celebrated with us the 30th anniversary of wizard magazine and we had our 30th reunion round 
timetable. You can see the video version there on YouTube. If you wanted to go back and listen to the edited version for audio, you can look in the archives here. Of course, do you want to get yourself some wizard swag? Go on over to TeePublic and try to find our <laughs> Wizards, the podcast guide to comics store. It's kind of a weird search engine over there. I don't know why it doesn't come up immediately, but just do your best. You might even search for Big Cheese T-shirt, because I'm pretty sure no one else is selling a T-shirt that says the Big Cheese on it in reference to Garib Sheamus. And speaking of Garib, I'm just going to spill the beans here. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, then we will find another way another time. But was speaking to Garib this week about setting up an interview with him. And we've been in talks about this for a while. We were hoping to get it in for the 30th anniversary, but he has another project coming up towards the end of the year. And he's going to give us some exclusive info on that, as well as some juicy behind-the-scenes details about the world of Wizard. So yes, we will be talking to Garib Sheamus himself in the future on the Wizard Files. So stay tuned. Adam, are you going to ask him the ultimate question? Garib Sheamus, cool or fool? Yes, that, that is going to <laughs> definitely be on the docket. <laughs> but until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.